I have to admit, I used to be a little bit of a book snob. I wouldn't even consider a Kindle, let alone an audiobook. It just felt like cheating. But that is until I tried Audible and Open Audible. Ever wonder where I find the time to read all the books that my guests have written on this show? Well, this is the answer. When I'm behind in my reading, I just jump to audiobook. Open Audible is a cross-platform audiobook manager designed for Audible users that can allow you to download, view, manage, and connect your favorite audiobooks on MP3 so that you can enjoy them across all your devices. Best of all, you can control it all from a desktop application. I'm giving away a copy of Open Audible for the entire month of November. All you have to do is sign up to my mailing list. You'll find the link in the description below or go to openaudible.org for more information. If you write articles or copy or even work as an editor for a magazine, you're going to want to listen to this advert. Are you looking to save time writing online content? Well, Phosphor AI is an online service that will save you hours of work with your content creation. All you have to do is type in your title and their AI software will get to work writing a high quality original article just for you. You'll need to review the article and take 15 to 20 minutes to make necessary edits, but then the piece will be ready for publishing. Just for signing up, you'll get three free articles so you can try out Phosphor AI and see what it can do all for yourself. Why waste time writing online content yourself when you can get Phosphor AI to do it for you? Try out their service today and see just how much time you can save. That's Phosphor AI. Go to phosphorai.com. So hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Susan Stanfield, a Canadian justice advocate. Uh, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No problem. I should also note author of Betrayed. Thanks for sending me the book. Um, much appreciated. Can't wait to get stuck into that. Um, so, yeah, the, the reason I actually came across you was because of your appearance on Geopolitics and Empire. Um, and Hervoji had said that you would be a very interesting person for me to talk to. And then uh, five minutes after getting through it, your interview with him, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely want to have you on the show. So, um, why don't you like give people just a little little idea of your background before we start, so they understand where you're coming from? Okay. okay, well, I'm glad you brought up um, the geopolitics because I have, when I was 18, I went to one of Canada's top universities, and I have an international political science bachelor of arts. So I, I wasn't particularly political at that age, but I just picked it, and so I started studying international governance models, and I started traveling, and I ended up traveling and living all over the world. I'm a television producer. Um, I cut my background, my family background was sort of law, judiciary, medical uh, in Canada. So I had access to seeing a huge variety of life in Canada. Ended up working in poverty for many years, um, advocating justice for uh, people in poverty. And so when COVID came along, I just had a really unique combination of experiences and insights to see through the lens, what I was watching on television, I was one of the people in Canada that kind of got the whole story, what was really going on based based on those pieces of my background. Hmm. So then maybe just also would be would be helpful for people to understand, like, what do you think the whole story is? Like, could, could you give us like that in a nutshell? Yeah, absolutely. So it's in Betrayed. And not that we're going to read through it, but um, what section is it? It's right near the end, and it's called um, Brexit. No, the uh, they had a meeting um, in Jackson Hole. Yeah, there it is, chapter fifty, I think. 
this this is this is the reset, I believe. Crypto, Brexit, and Jackson Hole. So in 2019, so this is my opinion, right? My theories, my research, and I always stick with the same kind of theory, is the central bankers had a meeting in the fall, the summer of, of 2019, and they meet every two months, apparently. And their system, their whole financial system was collapsing, just like it was at the subprime mortgage, because they had propped it up with all of this funny money, and it was collapsing again, and they were trying to figure out what to do. So they kicked around this idea of forcing a new financial system, and they were going. They were calling it the reset, and even King Charles spoke about it back then. We need. They need to reset the economy, the debt, the consumption, the inequalities, whatever. But we never would have gone along with it, right? The world would never have gone along with it, and that's when I think they brought in this idea. Okay, well, what if we run a fake health emergency? We'll get everybody home. We'll lock everybody down. We'll break down the current system. And then we'll, when we flood, after we flood the market with all this money, we'll allow the economies to open up slowly, slowly, so they won't go into hyperinflation, which failed. Um, and then we will, they will have this new reset economy. So that's what I think it is. Now, the complicated part is then they also kind of dropped in what I believe is a genocide. <laughs> they just sort of threw that in at the same time. So. But who knows? You know, there's like five, six, seven different things going on all at once. It's really complicated. The most complicated criminal operation in history, and that's what I call it. I call it a criminal operation. Hmm. Like, how how confident are you that, that all of the groups are working in tandem? It's like it's like quite often it occurs to me that there it might that there might well be this com like this. Not convulsion, but this like coming together of a bunch of different like insidious systems or systems that have like gotten out of control, like corrupted um, industries, like institutions, um, like just yeah, bad actors pulling strings that that they have the power to pull, and uh, all of these things sort of coming together at once and to to create this like perfect storm of, of a complicated situation rather than than like it being one overarching plan well i think the one overarching plan was the banksters and is the central bankers and that is mostly what i have investigated so this is bank of international settlements imf ecb all the I don't know, 180 central banks, whatever they are. So I believe they are the orchestrators. They are the overall orchestrators. But you're right. And this is why the great the great big plan, you know, the great leap forward, they try to do that in China and what Trudeau talks about in Canada. They always fail because massive bureaucratic systems full of different interests and agendas is just chaos. Every time it happens, it's chaos, right? But I think ultimately the primary mechanism are is the central bankers and that this is a financial reset then all these other people taking advantage of it but that was the collusion i think that they all spoke about and you can see the minutes and the publishing that came out of that meeting in 2019 mark carney was involved so he was canada's bank of canada governor then he became yours or whatever yeah. and i think he might have actually been the first person to say okay well let's do it now then they went away. So that was October, September, or August, September, October of 2019. And then boom, in Italy, February, March. And I think Italy probably dropped the bomb. I think Draghi, who used to, was the prime minister of Italy for eight months, he ran the European Central Bank for years. 
I think maybe he was one of the key people because that's when we started seeing these emergency issues with the seniors in Italy. And I think that was the first dropping of the pandemic bomb. Mm, so I would yeah. say the banksters. Okay. So then in what sense were the, was their, was their system collapsing? Okay. So I'm a lay person around this, but I happen to have experience losing everything a first time in 2008. When I married my husband, he had three properties and that's when the subprime mortgage thing hit and he lost them all. They all dropped in value by half. He was leveraged to the hilt. Nobody can buy them. This is how my marriage started. And after that, so this is Obama, this is the bailouts. They just flooded all of these banking systems and financial systems with funny money. They just photocopied a whole bunch of money and gave it to them. So they propped up the system with this fake money. And I think they always knew from that day on that they were like, okay, we're going to have to fix this at some point. And then so fast forward to 2019, 11 years later, I guess 10, 11 years later, that's when this perfect storm of monetary policy starts collapsing and they realize that there's nothing left. And, and the layperson, I would say, it, they basically stole all the money. And I think they've essentially stolen all the pension money too. If you look at the story of Greece, if you've ever seen that movie, The Adults in the Room, that's the story of what they did to Greece. Yeah, check out that movie, Adults in the Room. It's a perfect scenario of COVID, except it was 10 years earlier. And they completely screwed around Greece and got them um, to assume a huge amount of European debt. And they and they they told him, they said, if you don't go along with this, we're going to collapse your country. So do you know the term structural readjustment? Or you, you're probably too young for that, eh? Yeah, I don't I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, so that's another thing to look up or if the audience wants to. It was a term they used like in the 60s and 70s when they collapsed economies like Venezuela and stuff, they called it structural adjustment. So the bankers would lend hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in order, the guarantee to get that money back was to, to, to break the economy. And so those bankers would be guaranteed, you know, property, wealth, um, transactions, all, all of the money that was gonna be made in digging that country back out of poverty was gonna go back to the bankers. And it used to be called structural readjustment, but it got a really negative <laughs> reputation for obvious reasons. And I think that's what they did to us. I think they did it to Britain because now people are falling into poverty. And I think absolutely Trudeau did it to Canada. We were structurally readjusted. And now what is so shocking is the members of parliament and the big bankers, they're all starting to have these conversations like they didn't know what was going on for the past two or three years. And lay people like me, mothers, with our children, this is these paper cardboard signs trying to make a buck selling t-shirts or whatever. We knew what was going on the entire time. And now the status quo establishment of Canada is just starting to talk about it in the media. It, it's just shocking. It's so egregious. It's it's almost laughable. It really strikes me here that what you're saying about the structural readjustment and, and this this idea that like let me let me make sure I've got this straight actually before I go go on a ton <laughs> tangent about it. But so basically, you're saying that the the structural readjustment is like by uh, a way by which like the banker the banking system will either see a country in massive you know economic problems or theoretically even cause said massive economic problems lobbying for you know maybe sanctions or something that's going to cripple an economy. 
taking advantage of, of crises, basically. They'll go in and they'll say, okay, you know, we'll help rebuild this place, but we're going to make all the profit from it. Um, and- yeah, and that was Iraq, right? And mm-hmm. I call Canada Iraq 2.0. Mm-hmm. So they broke the economy and then they stole it. They completely stole the Iraq economy and Iraq is occupied now. It's an American economy. And they went in there with what, and it's exactly the same under COVID. There was a guy named John Bremer who was American state, state, whatever they call it, the you know head of state working with, um, I guess, Bush or Cheney or whoever, mm-hmm. drafted this document called the 100 Orders. So they whip this thing up, they head over to Iraq, they remove Hussein, they put in a fake president and say, okay, these are the orders that are going to run the country. And if the, it's on the internet. You just Google it. 100 orders of Iraq. Order 81 is no one can use sovereign food anymore. All the seeds are controlled by multinational cartels like Cargill. And so they completely restructured Iraq in the favor of the multinational corporations. Um, and they could do it in Iraq because they could go in with tanks and guns and everybody would go, oh, what's a war? It's Saddam. we got to get rid of Saddam Hussein. That never would have worked in the Western countries. We would never would have accepted that. So the war, the, the threat was the virus. But they did exactly the same to our economies. And Justin Trudeau apparently has written 54 orders in council since he's been in office. And they're secretive. Uh, I, I had a whistleblower call me saying that the our big, huge uh, crown corporation that runs mortgages and is the mortgage backer, the mortgage insurer, basically, of Canada, walked into Trudeau's office and said, we know what you're doing. You're going to collapse the property market. We're not leaving until you give us $40 billion. And he did. Apparently, he gave it to them. The guy quit and resigned and moved to another part of the country. So a lot of the powerful people, they would have seen this. They would have knew exactly what Trudeau was about to do. And even our central, uh, our head of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, he, you can see him in interviews over the past few years saying, well, we're bringing in the large stock purchasers. So these were huge companies that would then pick up all of the assets that people would have to dump because they're going into poverty. That was 2008. So we lost $400,000 worth of property. Well, guess who bought it? right things like that so that i can't explain structural adjustment much more than that that's kind of an economist economist um to take it from where i left off but it also used to be called austerity uh and that's why you see you hear the politicians now in all these countries saying we're going to help with the cost of living we're going to help britain and canadians with the cost of living because they know they know they're making us poor and they're not apologizing no no, they're not. And or or they'll like just decide that they'll print a bunch of money to pay the energy companies so that the price doesn't rise too much for us, but we're still paying for it. Um but now the the part of it I'll just let me say one more thing cuz I didn't know this part and I think this is probably the case. The part of it that um made sense in terms of them maybe trying to be responsible financially was the reason why they locked down the economies was they were going to flood the system with this new fake photocopied money. But if they had allowed the regular economy to operate, it would have, we would have gone into hyperinflation. And so they selectively started opening up parts of the economy to slow down the hyperinflation. 
And I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. That, that, that's a, a mechanism why they would have kept us locked down. Why would they have, they would have kept airports shut, borders shut. They were, they were trying to lock down as much of the economy to run this new money through the system. But again, it's a little bit sort of my pay grade sort of stops there. <laughs> and if you want to introduce, meet the guy that knows about that, I, I can find him for you because I watched a great interview with him. Yeah, that would probably be really interesting. Um, but no, it just it strikes me that what you're saying is very similar to um, what Naomi Klein writes about in in the Shock Doctrine. I don't know if you if you know that book. Yes, exactly. Um, fellow Canadian, right? Yeah. Um, Disaster capitalism, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And we just never thought that this would happen to Western countries. We've seen it for decades in other countries, Venezuela, Greece, hyperinflation. But we're like, well, it'll never happen to our countries because. You know, we're we're powerful, we're Western, we're rich, we're developed, and then boom, it did. Well, then we printed all this money. Um, yeah, really seems like a lot of our serious, serious problems started in 2008. I mean, there's definitely roots go back a lot further, but that's really when it, when it all all kicked off isn't it so um the reason i i got in touch with you or what well, the, well, the reason that i wanted to start with with this was just because um i wanted to ask about about bricks and about bricks plus because because you'd mentioned it in um you know in your your interview with geopolitics and empire and i was you sort of mentioned it and then and then went on from it and i was i was kind of hoping that you'd be able to you know like break down like what bricks is and and what they're attempting to do in in a challenge to the sort of hegemony or hegemony hegemony of the the petrodollar basically and the sort of u.s yeah. driven financial system yes well okay so i'll say this in case people don't know bricks is brazil russia india china and then south africa so they were the last of the five to join and when I moved to Africa in 2005, that's when the BRICS was starting. I believe it was in 2006, and it was united in the General Assembly of the United Nations where they set it up. So I got some numbers for you just to be prepared. 40% of the world lived in the BRIC countries. And so BRICS Plus has more countries, Bangladesh, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and maybe a few more. So the BRICS are growing. I, I had a feel, I thought there were 40 countries in BRICS Plus. I was trying to find a list for you. So it's essentially, and this is what I learned when I lived in Africa for 11 years. I was like, Africa is getting richer. And then I would fly back to Canada once a year. And I'd be like, I saw Canada getting poorer. And I thought Africa's lifting itself up. They're becoming middle class. This is where the growth is. And the highest growth and the fastest growing countries are in Africa, eight of them. And so we won't have the same growth in the Western countries because most of our population is aging. And they're retired, right? We just can't keep up. We'll never be as, as fast. So what's forming now, I think China and Russia being the leaders of BRICS and BRICS Plus, I got some information yesterday saying that they have actually dropped a new payment system now. So this will compete with, say, like SWIFT and how payments are processed, how money is cleared. So same like your restaurant bill of 75 pounds, just as much as, you know, $25 million commodity shipment of grain. So the clearing and the processing of payments is where the big power is. And it looks like BRICS Plus, uh, th through maybe through China and one of the development banks, has launched a competitor to the Western system. So this will be the big change over the next five years. It's like, it's like if somebody's having a party and across the street somebody else is having another party, who's, who's going to get all the guests, right? 
Um, and the truth is most people live in the developing world now. And the BRICS the group, they call it South-South. We used to call it North-South trade. Now they just talk South-South and they just want to trade with each other. So China, India, Asia, uh, Brazil, Russia. I mean, these are hundreds of millions of people. There's 200 million people in Brazil. They don't need Canada. They don't need France or England. They have each other. And they all want cars and they all want jobs and they all want running shoes or solar power, whatever they want, right? Mm. So that's essentially the bricks. There's a couple more things. I was going to put my glasses on. I wrote down for you. Um, there's a guy that people might want to follow. He is the Chinese uh, foreign minister, and his name is Wang Yi. So he's going to be the one who's probably designing the architecture of this new financial system. Um, and that their currency, the renminbi won, will be, it will replace the U.S. dollar as the dollar that the, the currency that backs commodity trade and all these big money systems. It, it just has to be. It's the way it's going. And, and all these countries, the BRICS countries in South South, they're just tired of being bullied and they're tired of being pushed around. And so if we need cheap labor and if we need more poor countries to support what's going on in the world, that's probably going to be us now. We're going to be the cheap labor, <laughs> right? Because you know, China's obviously the economy is changing, but I don't know if that's enough information that answers what you're looking for. Um, BRICS, BRICS Plus, apparently also they do 23% of all GDP in the world. So that's about a quarter of it. And that, that seems a bit low, actually, since there's so many of them. But remember, these are upward trajectory trends. So it's only going to get more and more. And some of these economies are doubling. Yeah. Yeah, it's they're, they're, they've got a lot of growth left to come. Um and a lot of young people, right? Like, like third, what? Let's say seventy percent of the population of countries like Africa in Africa are under the age of of thirty. Yeah, yeah, they got a lot of growth to come in the in the the next sort of two decades, and it's hmm, because I was speaking to someone. Actually, the interview will be out before this one, so. Um, I was speaking to to a guy called Bob Moriarty, who who believes that, that who was basically telling me that that he thinks that that Russia and China are planning a new currency that will be backed by something other than just you know and like not a fiat yeah, style currency. Um, backed and, by gold, maybe. Yeah, since they've been yeah. buying up a lot of gold, um, both Russia and China. Um, so, and I've just found this thing that I was just pulling up for people while you were talking. Um, that the Eurasian Economic Union, um, or that's like Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Russia, um, and also includes Iran, Serbia, Vietnam, and other nations, uh, are yeah, basically they're they're going to be working together with BRICS, um, in order to make one united payment system for those for all of those countries. So like, this is uh, very well, much that's what i heard has just dropped is mm -hmm. the payment sy system is actually working now i tried to find the name i can't find the name um and britain has been testing a similar um they're all changing right they're all kind of adapting and i went into a barclays about six months ago and came across the very first interbank machine they, they were testing and they asked me to test it and this was new and so this is a new system that britain is using as well to be able to move money between banks and you know the digitization of the money um what um what i came across about the new system what was it that that the currency the new currency will be 
yeah, what was it? I think backed by gold. And some of the biggest commodity um, orders now are using gold. So who was it? Was it China the other day or somebody? They backed an order with gold. They didn't. They didn't use. Yeah, what was it? They didn't have enough foreign. They didn't have enough American currency. So they used gold, and it was a big energy purchase or a commodities purchase. So it's already happening, right? And you think it's kind of surprised me that it's actually taken this long that all these countries allowed themselves to be kind of pushed around by Western countries for so many decades. Mm. And everybody just accepted the system. Oh, that's the way it is. And if you don't like it, we're going to send our armies over. Mm. So um, in, in, in that interview I watched, you, you sort of talked about the central bank system and, and why you think why it's like so important or both, both important and secretive. Um, yeah. in the way that the world runs so do you think that like what what we're seeing here is like a because the central bank system like you said there's like i don't know like 180 central banks or something is this like is this like a split that we're witnessing in in how like central banks of the world want to run the the, the global economy i don't see it that way but in terms of who sets policy maybe that people different countries would want different policy so you know, the central bank system of everybody being on the system, it's like you and I being film, uh, TV producer or filmmakers, we have our own language and you and I talk about software and sound and lighting. And we know that most people aren't going to understand. So we don't even bother including them in the conversation. You know, our moms do this. When we start talking with other moms about our children, we just let everybody else not listen who don't have kids because we're like, they don't understand. So I think that a, the part of the central banker society, they've gotten so used to thinking that the average person won't understand their concepts. They speak a whole other language. And a lot of what they're doing is caretaking the financial systems of the world. And that's a good thing, right? They're making sure that people, the trust in money is a big part of central bank systems. And I didn't really appreciate that until I started doing this research, that if people lose trust, in the financial system, then we're all screwed because you have to trust money and, mm. you know, banks. But I think the biggest challenge to the system has been crypto. Mm. And you've probably been following the, the very high profile death of like four, three or four crypto billionaires in the last what week. What the fuck is going on? Yeah. And Christiane Lagarde, who used to run IMF, who now runs ECB, she talked about that quite a bit. She said, it's this whole crypto thing is very, you know, it has to be controlled and we're very nervous about it because like I said, it's like the party thing. What happens if the person across the street starts throwing a better party and you lose all your customers and suddenly you got a whole bunch of beer there that's not going to be drunk uh, because everybody's going to the party across the street. So there must be power and control in all of this. And I think that the hydra of the whole system must be the bank of international settlements you know th this is, this seems to be the company or the shareholders that photocopy all the money and it's just ludicrous when you think about it we give this power to these people just to photocopy all this new money and then they lend it to us and we pay interest to them and <laughs> they're just making it out of thin air it's 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 just it's comical when you think about it so we have to have a a, a central I, I believe in a good central bank system that's trustworthy but the, the piece that all these countries should really be taking back is that their central banks serve their sovereign citizens. So until the 80s, the Canadian central bank did not charge interest on loans to governments inside our country. That was a big part of their policy. You could get interest-free loans to develop Canada. 
that's all gone and that's not good. So now we pay loans to foreigners. That's like ridiculous, right? It's the first time I think in 90 years that the Bank of Canada has not generated profit this year. Wow. So what's going even on? Through, even, even through COVID? Uh, yeah. So tw- maybe it was 2021 that they didn't do profit because we're okay. just, yeah. no, 2022. I don't know when their fiscal year is, but um, the very first year, because they do make profit. <clears throat> on handling the money. The government of Canada pays the Bank of Canada to run the system. And this is the first year that they've, they've um, lost money. And so the bank, the governor is in big trouble. He's in hot water and he's being interviewed quite a bit now. And everyone's like, well, why didn't you stop this three years ago? And he's saying things like, well, this fiscal, you know, the spending really should have been reined in. I'm like, isn't that your job? <laughs> you know, people like you and I don't know this kind of stuff. They do, right? You can see how they would just, okay, a little bit more, okay, another couple billion, okay, another 50 billion or whatever. So that that's what I hope a lot of very simple lay person, people under, start digging into is things like how do the central banks work? Because they do affect our lives hugely. Mm. Well, I mean, it seems like the, the, the excess spending by central banks was just because the, the system without like massive influxes of cash was just going to fall to bits. And it's like, you know, you can keep you can keep laying the tracks in front of the train, but you can't go any faster than the train to like, you know, make a nice nice track in front of you. So they're just like fr- frantically like firing the tracks in front of the train, like printing money yes. and continuing to go until eventually it's you know it's just going to come crashing off when they just stop, which is what we see every time they like taper off, tip taper it off, and the, like the the markets go insane. And then they're like, okay, it's okay, we'll, we'll calm down, we'll calm down, we'll calm down. And then they're like, okay, taper back, taper back, taper back, like, and then like yeah, everything hits the fan. They're like, oh no, wait, 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 wait. And we have to we have to get more educated. Like the central bankers meet every two months apparently. And so we can read their minutes. We could go to their meetings if they allow the public. We could get journalists in there. Like a lot of it mm-hmm. is up mm-hmm. to us as well. We can't expect, you know, you have to you have to participate. And especially when it's something to do with, that affects you on a day-to-day basis, like the expenditure of money and stuff like that. So I'm always grateful for what this whole COVID thing has been because the, the major silver lining, I think, is it's forced a lot of people to be more proactive in mm-hmm. all aspects of their lives. We were just sitting back watching Netflix and running our credit cards up. Well, those days are over, right? Mm, yeah, sadly. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish to go back. I know people do like half jokingly and half seriously. And it's just like, no, 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 no. Can't wait yeah. To... I mean, to, to, to have the harm that came again, like we, we, my family lost everything. We were thrown out of a house we were renting because we couldn't pay the rent and we didn't have food in the fridge. And being I was arrested twice and stuff like there's no way there's no way I'm going to cut the corners on being educated. The pieces, though, we have we can't figure out are things like what's the new pay system? How do we we've got all this plastic in our wallets. We've got money in the bank. We've got employment. Right. It's our it's our labor and our cash flow from our employment. How do we harness that and take take it back? Uh, with the little time that we have during the week when we've got free time to go and what we're just going to like alter the banking systems ourselves. You know, it, it is very intimidating and it's very, very out of reach for the average person. But one day at a time, we'll get there. Do you see there being a way to escape this, this doom, <laughs> basically? Yeah, I think so. I tell you a couple of funny things. So if you were really rich, you could escape it. And that's not... Um, 
I was thinking about for everyone, you know, all of Yeah, this. well, I'm just trying to come up with a few scenarios. It also, I think if you're very poor, you can escape it. Because when COVID started, all the lockdowns and the, and the um, restrictions and all that, they didn't apply them to the poor people in Vancouver. And I, I, I hang out with poor people. I know where they are. And I, I'm in their communities working and stuff. And there was nothing. They weren't even getting them to mask. And I was like, so they're not going after the poor people. And I lived around all the rich people and they took off to their summer homes. So they, their second home. So they were fine. And I was like, this whole system is going after the big middle-class people. They're going after the people that are the daily churn that are working in corporate America or corporate England that have credit cards and pensions and jobs. That's what they're after. So the more you can remove yourself from these contracts and systems, um the safer you're going to be and when i got offered to swipe a qr code and go into a building i was like uh, no thank you <laughs> just little things like that right so reviewing you could do a complete housekeeping review of every contract you have every commitment every signature every uh, piece of id every digital thing you use your phone whatever you could overall you can kind of detox do a tyranny detox and try and get as far away from it as you can. But I think the most powerful tool is that people have opportunities to earn independent, dignified income, and they're not going to be forced to make choices in between their dignity and um, their paycheck, mm. you know, their freedom and their paycheck. And that's where a lot of Canadians are in a lot of trouble because a lot of Canadians work for corporate Canada and they're still being told if you want a job, you have to follow the medical the new medical rules and they can't get out because they'll lose everything and they're complying. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably why the destruction of small businesses was so important. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. So they, they want the dependent state. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But so we're going to win. We're, we're winning. We're totally going to win and we're going to win. And I wish I had um, remembered this. I saw something this morning about a fund that Larry Fink was trying to set up, right? BlackRock. So he set up some new fund and maybe it's a climate fund. I call it the green grift um, and it's failing and no one's putting money into it. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Oh. People are catching on. You could probably even find that if you Google that it's probably news by now. Probably, that's how we look. Um, so what is Larry Fink? Yeah, Larry Fink. So he's BlackRock, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that he might have been one of these um, architects with Mark Carney at the central bankers meetings. I think he was very much in on the the racket of, okay, why don't we just shut down the whole global economy and reset it? I think Larry Fink was probably at that table. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. And it is a small little world. Like what is there maybe a couple hundred of them? That's all they would really need to run all these world systems. I mean, you go onto these big websites and they're all cross the crossover from board of directors to friends yeah. to wives, whatever. It, it's a small group. Yeah. You wonder how they have time to do all these jobs. <laughs> People like us who are like doing all the, the menial labor. Mm. Well, um, and also, too, it's been building, I guess, since 1945. I think this the system really has been layering and layering since Bretton Woods after the Second World War. So it's not like it's always been, you know, John Smith running this. It's just sort of handed over. And that's the, the institutional imperative, I guess. Warren Buffett says that, that this bureaucratic sludge just keeps sort of 
turning all of these agendas forward. We just had a mayor change, a big mayor of Vancouver election and the new mayor's in. And I'm like, I wonder of how much of the stuff was just left on the last mayor's table that he's just gonna pick up and keep doing. That isn't necessarily the interests of the people. And he's not ever gonna ask us what we want. He's just gonna keep doing what the old mayor said. Oh, this is what we're doing now. <laughs> and it's just the bureau bureaucratic imperative. It just keeps going. I would say probably 95% of what was happening before, unless he stood very openly against something. Um, so you, you kind of referenced there this, this divide between like working class people or like maybe even middle class and like sort of middle upper class, like in, in, in terms of like how, how they reacted and how they were dealt with almost differently through the pandemic. Like, what do you think was causing that? And what do you think the reason for it was? Well, my own experience was I, I lived in a very affluent neighborhood and at the time. I was just renting part of a house. Not, I did not affluent myself, but the third wealthiest neighborhood in Canada. I was living in when the pandemic started. So my neighbors owned one of the hockey teams and their whole house was boarded up. Like the, the week before it started, I was like, where are they? There was always like vehicles everywhere. And I was like, that's weird. And I kept noticing these things happening. And because I was on the, I was in the super loser group, but I was in this very wealthy neighborhood, I stuck out. And so I was on a golf course one day and I was talking to a husband and wife. We we're all walking. Everybody was walking on the golf course. And I said, well, I just, we lost everything. And they couldn't relate because they didn't have jobs. They were retired. They were sheltered from any form of lockdown. They thought it was great, right? They're like, oh, it's great. We love the lockdown. And the more we talked, we talked for about half an hour and we, we both kind of looked at each other. And I said to them, I go, your reality is completely different than mine. You don't have little children, so you don't have them home now. Their schools aren't closed. They were sheltered from everything purely because of their demographic uh, makeup, who they were, retired, wealthy in their 70s. Mm. Um, and they didn't see it as a problem. So people like me, um, I think we noticed it more. And I, I did a lot of research. I went all, all over town, all over the lower mainland where we live. I looked, I went to hospitals, I photographed things, I gathered a huge amount of evidence. And what I noticed was the people who were very wealthy could buy their, their way out. They ended up, like I literally, I said that they went to summer homes. They went to houses in California. They treated it as a holiday. They were just managing their wealth so they didn't have to go to work. Um, and then the poor people, they were already on assistance and they weren't necess didn't necessarily have jobs. So they were kind of sheltered. It was this middle group. It was the middle class. And it was particularly women and it was particularly self-employed people. We didn't qualify for a lot of the government bailout money. And I, and I didn't want it anyway. Um, and so it was this stratified reality in Canada. And it was so easy to see who was being harmed more than the other people. And this was before the vaccines. This was just because of the lockdown. So I come from a working class British family like six, seven generations ago. And I grew up with that story. And I know what that is, right? Um, but because they left Britain in 1840, because it just sucked for them, right, they entered Canada and became status quo Canadians. And so our family became upper middle class Canadians six or seven generations later. Everybody did. And that's why a lot of people went to Canada. So we've never had like a word. We don't call 
that group of people working class in Canada. And particularly because we didn't do the hardcore manufacturing that was done in countries like England. Mm -hmm. We never did that. All of that was done for us and brought into our country, you know, textiles, all that kind of stuff. Right. So the average Canadian person had never seen or lived any kind of hardship that was brought into us, Mm -hmm. into our lives. But I had because I had lived in Africa and like I said, the working class ancestors and whatever. And so that's when I knew. And, and for a lot of other reasons, I knew this was a financial heist. I knew it was about money. Mm-hmm. It's always about money. So how do the central bankers have a very coincidental release of a possibly man-made virus out of possibly Wuhan, China, probably. But like, so, so how, how, how do how do the how do the bankers um, do that in your mind? Well, like I said, I think it was this 2019 series of meetings, G20 or G, G8 meetings as well, when they were all sitting around. And you can imagine, let's pretend you and I are central bankers. And we want to bring in a new financial system, right? So that's a good thing, right? Okay, they want to fix the financial system. How would how would you do it? How would you get everybody to stop participating in one system and move them over into another? I would have been honest and said, okay, world, we're screwed. Everybody's got to suddenly move over into a new system. Come on. And I would have given people a carrot. We'll pay you to move into this new system and been very honest about it. But they didn't do that. And that is the the nature of power and money and tyranny. They used a stick. You know, instead of a carrot, they used a stick. And I think they just told themselves they had to lie to us. And they actually didn't need to lie to us. They shouldn't have. But I think they cooked it up. And this is the problem with all these meetings and these rich, powerful people. Like, oh, we're going to do this and it's going to work, right? Yeah, it's going to work. And it almost never works well. And it always hurts people. And I think that's what they did. They cooked it up. And that guy who was British or American, Peter, Peter, um, what was his name? Gurnitz or whatever, the guy that tried to do the swine flu. There's, he tried to do a couple of other things. I think they brought him in. And he said, this is what you do. You just throw it up on television. You say everybody's going to die from a virus and everyone will stay home. So I think they probably literally engaged the services of experts on how to lock down and control societies, and they decided to use a pandemic. I, I think they probably, they just decided we would never go along with it. It was gonna to take too long. It was involved too much choice. They, they didn't wanna have choice. They had to remove choice, so they used the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then that's when the really weird part comes in. They, they, they didn't use, they also launched a drug trial at the same time. They launched the mRNA drug trial at the same time. And that's where oh, it gets someone's got to make a profit out of this. Complicated, yeah. Well, they I had known this because I started, I, I've, I knew the corruption of public health from Africa, but I started researching the public health corruption in Canada in 2018 because I was threatened at my kid's school with a $250,000 fine. If I didn't give my kids vaccine records over and I was like, we have people in government who are writing policy like that for mothers. And I started digging around. So I knew there was something going on with pharmaceuticals in my province and in Vancouver and BC. And I started asking questions and nobody would talk to me. And I was like, something's going on, right? Nobody would meet me. The mayor, superintendents, journalists, everybody. 
Um, so I knew that our public health officer was involved in something shady uh, because the policies had started changing when she came into place. Mm. And at that time, I think that's when they realized that they could launch a global or using the Western countries mostly drug trial. And that was to try not necessarily the vaccines because they weren't, but they wanted to try. And again, this is in my book. You'll see it. They wanted to try the mRNA delivery technology because the problem with the injected pharmaceutical industry was the testing and the safety tests took way too long. They took 10 years and that really slowed down the cash flow. And they were looking for faster ways to get product onto the market. And that's where the mRNA came in. So I think it was just kind of a perfect storm, to be honest. It was the mRNA. It was the banking system. It was just enough corrupt leaders of governments all at the same time who went who all went along with it and they must have all made a lot of money they must have paid them all a lot <laughs> i well i mean if you know these things are coming you it's it's if you if you have prior knowledge of of these sorts of massive events like say say if you're married to the speaker of the house it can it could be quite profitable uh i hear at least anyway, the, the, to have sort of that sort of insider knowledge. So I'm, I'm sure they, they, anyone who had any sort of inkling that something was coming will have profited quite handsomely. Yeah. Yeah. And I have people who gave me testimonies to that as well, like members of parliament who said, well, we were told to go along. And so we did and little bits and pieces like that. And I often wonder, like, if I had been that person, if I had been a member of parliament with a mortgage, and all this stuff at stake. And I didn't know about the pharmaceutical corruption and I didn't know that vaccines injured people. I come from that world. I went to university with these people. I know some of them socially. Could I have just as easily been in that room and decided to go along with it? What do you think? I'll never know. We all want to believe we're the hero, right? Yeah, and I just happened to know a whole bunch of stuff that a lot that most people didn't know, and that's what made me go, "Wait a minute, this is crime." But I might not have known that if I hadn't got gone to live in Africa, if I hadn't started studying pharmaceuticals. So, what what, what did you what did you study, uh, or what what about the the uh, what about African public health made you re like? Did you you'd say that you'd sort of noticed that African public health had been very corrupted? Like, what what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I lived in Nairobi for five years, and Nairobi is the head of a lot of things. So USA, the United Nations, Nairobi is the head of a lot of this. And so I met tons of people who worked in public health, and it was a gravy train, and they all talked about it. They made a ton of money that was paid for by their governments. They saved all this money, and they went back and they bought houses. And nobody ever really got any healthier in Africa. It was a kind of a racket in a way, despite people having good intentions. And a lot of people told me who worked in public health. They didn't want to work in public health anymore because they knew it was corrupt. And so what happened was around probably around 2010, I guess, the public health community realized that they could use public health money to lift people out of poverty. And so public health money started becoming development money. And so they would give public health money instead of opening a health clinic, they would give it to women to start a small business because that small business would uplift those women and they would buy healthier food and then the public health problems would be solved. And so it, it became development money. And I came across four or five different situations where huge amounts of American public health money came into Nairobi and into Kenya and all of the projects 
failed and were kind of scams in a way. And I kept running into them over and over again. And someone would say, oh, yeah, there you go. There's another public health white elephant. And it was something that was built at the side of the road that nobody ever used. Just millions and millions of dollars all the time. And so anytime you have systems of, of aid um, and an imbalance of trade, like we will give to you because you're poor, you will find brokenness and corruption. Mm-hmm. And, and Nairobi is, is the center of it in Africa, I would say. Okay. So, see, so I mean, it, so basically, you think the same thing has happened to to our our public health systems in 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 the developed world, where the they've become, yeah, gravy trains for people to to you know just profit off massively through government contracts or like yeah no no bid contracts or just knowing the right people basically um, and being able to hop on the public purse basically for, for whatever project yeah. you're going to get paid And one for. of the reasons why is this, the products and the service are given to the people for free. And so there's no checks and balance of a market economy. And so that's why all of the injected drugs are free for us. You don't pay for them. Nobody would use these things if you had to go in and pay a hundred pounds for one of these injections, right? So it's free. And so the, the, the multinational corporations have realized they're going to be doing business with governments. So they don't have to be doing business with people and individuals and consumers who might go, ah, no, thanks. Uh, I, I have to pay $40 for this book. Mm, I don't think so. But if the book is free, They'll take it. And that's what is called stakeholder capitalism, this whole new WF and the whole Bill Gates thing. So these multinational corporations, they're now doing business with our governments and they don't even really care about us because once they get the contract with the government, that's all they need. And so that's why I'm always wondering why these pharmaceutical companies even care if these things are injected into our bodies, because they're just there for the sale. They just want to sell a million units of of measles uh, drugs to the government of Britain. Once the government says, okay, give us the um, procurement paperwork, here's your money and your deposits, the pharmaceutical companies do nothing after that. The government does everything else. They store them, they put them in trucks, they put them in clinics, they start marketing them, they put them on the television commercials. The pharmaceutical company's done. They don't do anything. And so that doesn't exist in any other parts of the economy. Can you imagine if the government gave you all your furniture? or dropped all your food off at your house, <laughs> right? Or but told you what you could it. spend your money on. And that's coming, right? Yeah. Mm. But we accept it with something like, well, it's it's medical and it's health because typically that has been something mm. that has been delivered to us fairly. And so I think a lot of these multinational corporations realize that um, the health industry and the health budgets were easy money. They were low-hanging fruit for them to go after. So in my province of British Columbia, and let's say the economy is worth $350 billion a year, or I think it's worth $450 billion a year, my, my BC economy. And so let's say the budget, the government budget is matching that, right? 40% of the government, the entire government budget goes to one ministry, and that's the Ministry of Health. That's pretty wild. 40%. 40. So almost half of all the government money goes to one ministry. So there's forestry, natural resources, education. Um, all Let's say there's 20 ministries. I don't know. 40%. One gets almost half. Yeah. It feels like a lot. 
It's huge. And I think BC must be probably one of the most corrupt health jurisdictions in the world and the most oh, drugged I... people. I, I think it is. I know people don't realize that, but I think it is just because of a, a succession of certain leaders that we've had and whatever. Um, Bonnie Henry, our public health officer, got a half a million dollar grant at the beginning of COVID to do what's called policy massage. And this is to get the government to pick up the cost of abortion drugs. So the women didn't have to spend $800. The government was going to pay it for it instead of the women. Hmm. And however you feel about that or I feel about that, that's a different story. Maybe it should be free. Maybe it shouldn't be. But <clears throat> that's the transfer of the wealth, right? The, the, the government will now pay for everything and the pharmaceutical companies, they just have to do business with the government now. Do you think that's what was in all of these like agreements that we're never allowed to see between like say Pfizer and Moderna and you know the British government or the European Union is one that keeps getting getting brought up because of um Ursula von der Leyen and the have you seen the the contracts that the the Romanian MEP held up in in the European Parliament yes. it's just amazing he's like how is this transparency and he's just going through like pages and pages and pages of redacted just it looks like it looks like a fucking CIA UFO report. Like there's nothing. It's like Yeah, these um these contracts, right? They're military. And you know, Ursula was she was the director of defense, right? And I think same with our public health officer. She has a military background and this was a military operation. That's a whole other layer of it, right? The Department of, of Defense in the US, they were, I think, the ones that were brought on board to run it. That's a whole other layer. So the military was involved just like Iraq, right? Gets military because they've got all of these systems and it's it's maybe it's gonna take another like three or four or five years to actually have the full story. I'm gonna watch it as a television series one day because there's still huge pieces of it that most of us don't know. I'm skeptical as to whether we'll actually ever get the real story. I hope we do. Really? Well, well we I mean, got so much of it already yeah but right there's having the real story out there and then there's having the real story where like you can talk to the people on the street and they will be like oh yeah definitely and the the, the news will report the story as it should be you know like there's and the government will will say oh yeah you know or eventually admit yeah no actually that was what happened it wasn't us you know it was it was that previous administration they'll get the papers out you know, no, see, I wasn't involved. I wasn't involved at all. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's what I think will happen. If, but I don't. No, actually, I don't even think we'll get that. I think we'll just we'll never know that that we'll never have the admission, and it will it'll be you know people will know and talk about it in fucking hushed conversations. Well, but, and time goes by, and you and people forget. You know, even even now, people that I collaborate with they're like oh yeah i forgot about that things that happened in 2020 at the beginning you just forget time goes by and you forget yeah but um when they were beating I, people for being outside yeah or just some of the stuff like remember in canada that they told us that we weren't allowed to um touch the money because the money had the virus on it did you guys get that no actually <laughs> oh my god and the canadians some of them fell for it, right? I'd be standing in coffee shops and they were like, no, we don't take money because of COVID, the virus. And I was like, oh my God, you actually think it's on the money? Um, things like that. So, but I'm always positive because 
throughout history, studying history and evolution of societies and whatever, all the way, say, from the Roman Empire, all these other, you know, phases of tyranny and say your your um, monarchical ruling establishment through all the kings of the last centuries and stuff. There's always been tyranny and people have always fought against it. Mm, true. And it's just, it's this new version of it. It's kind of a digital version of it. But look at the control that the Roman Empire had. Like how much of the world, how many countries, like 10 countries all the way from England, North Africa, Lebanon, whatever. Think about how much land and people were controlled by the Roman Empire. And they would run, they'd send a note to somebody and put him on a ship and he'd run across England and deliver the note. Like, <laughs> So we managed, people fought down the Roman Empire and they got rid of that. Uh, and a lot of other examples of this. So I just think it's kind of, it's it's this century's version of that. And I'm very hopeful about what's coming because humanity always innovates. And I do believe that justice and truth es essentially are always winning. They're all, they always have the upper hand, especially if we are allowed to communicate with one another. I think the scare, the, to, to me, some of the scariest stuff is this digital prison world that's being built, mm. all the surveillance system and these cameras that we're living under and that we're being mapped and controlled all the time. And we don't even actually know that we're living in these prison prisons because we're like, oh, my God, I got this new phone. But it's really, we're kind of the slaves to the system and people are profiting off us. Yeah, the Romans didn't have digital currency. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they had uh, they had swords and, and dogs and guillotines and stuff, right? Yes, well, thankfully, the police don't have any concerning powers these days. Um, <coughs> oh, my whole setup is falling apart. Sorry uh, about that. My lighting. That's all right. Don't worry. Um I was going to say this feels like a nice place to 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 end things that this is okay. the this is the this is the battle for our time. Yes, it is absolutely. Um and that's why I've always um I've always tried to sorry, I'm just going to try and get this up. Yeah. I've always tried to focus on women and moms is that they have this innate ability to network and talk and and share resources. Uh, and distribute information like really effectively. That's what I've always done. Um, and I think that it's just going to explode even more in the next year or two. More people are finding the story. So people like you who are doing this kind of stuff, how many people would see this video? I put a video up last month and like 13,000 people saw it in a week. So you never know. I'm getting a lot of traction on my, my interview from with uh, Andrew Huff, the Echo Health Alliance whistleblower at the minute. His story seems to be going uh, quite oh, viral. Great. It's a lot of traffic. I don't know his name. Is he British? Uh, no, no, no. He's a former U.S. military. Um, oh, okay. He he worked with Echo Health Alliance. Um, and yeah, basically, has blown the whistle for the past two years, and then just released a book called Andrew "The Truth About Wehan and Doctor Andrew Huff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and just a tsunami of books and videos and stuff that are coming out now. So. Well, listen, I just wanted to say thank you so much. And if you, all of my books are actually sold, but I have 11 copies of what I call publishers books that I wasn't going to sell because they were, there's nothing wrong with them. It's the real book, but they were too heavy. And so if you wanted to give away something, you can give away a book, let me know and just get back to me by email. I also sell these really cool toques. So if you wanted to give away a toque, you can take your pick. If somebody wants it. these. <laughs> 
story about this. Um, these sell really well, so they're kind of fun for women. That's cool. Maybe I'll, yeah. Yeah, maybe I will. That sounds fantastic. Um, then I will put links for your 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 store um, and uh, the interviews I was talking about before and everything in the description below for people. So, um, Susan, thanks very much. Yeah, okay, thank you. It's sorry about the technical problems. Don't worry about it. Soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time. So whenever I'd be out for a walk, whenever I was going to cook dinner, whenever I was doing cleaning, I always used to spend my time listening to music. And I still really enjoy listening to a lot of music. But what I've discovered is that I can consume so many more books when I'm using something like Open Audible. It's a fantastic, fantastic way for me to make my way through all the things I have to read for this podcast, for things I want to read for fun. That's like fiction and nonfiction. Sometimes I actually prefer fiction when it's being read to me. Uh, I like someone doing the voices, like someone, you know, really getting into the characters. In the case of both fiction and nonfiction, it allows me to spend way more time visualizing what I'm reading. So I can think more about the ideas, I can think more about the scenes that people are trying to paint, and ultimately it just gives my brain more space to think because I'm not concentrating on the words in front of me or trying to stay focused on it. Instead, I can just sort of mindlessly get on with whatever task I'm doing and listening via Open Audible. Now, the reason Open Audible is great is because it allows me to do it straight from my desktop. I try to stay away from my phone as much as possible in order to sort of maximize my productivity because it can be a very fast way to waste half an hour. Whereas if I just open my laptop and hit play on Open Audible, I can connect it to my Bluetooth speaker and then I don't even have to go anywhere near my phone. Do you like free stuff? I'm sure you do. Well, I'm gonna give away a free copy of Open Audible to one lucky person that signs up for my mailing list in the next month. Now, those of you who are already signed up, don't worry, you can be involved in the draw as well. Just give me a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and post it on Twitter. Send it to me via email. Respond to something I've posted on YouTube. Somewhere you can prove you've got a screenshot and I will enter you in the draw. I have to admit, I used to be a little bit of a book snob. I wouldn't even consider a Kindle, let alone an audiobook. It just felt like cheating. But that is until I tried Audible and Open Audible. Ever wonder where I find the time to read all the books that my guests have written on this show? Well, this is the answer. When I'm behind in my reading, I just jump to audiobook. Open Audible is a cross-platform audiobook manager designed for Audible users that can allow you to download, view, manage, and connect your favorite audiobooks on MP3 so that you can enjoy them across all your devices. Best of all, you can control it all from a desktop application. I'm giving away a copy of Open Audible for the entire month of November. All you have to do is sign up to my mailing list. You'll find the link in the description below or go to openaudible.org for more information.